Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with Jer Thorpe. He's been the data artist in residence at the New York Times, a National Geographic explorer, and the innovator in residence at the Library of Congress. He's here today with Living in Data, a citizen's guide to a better information future. Then founder and CEO Joe Hernandez tells us about Blue Water Vaccines and its unusual quest to develop a universal flu vaccine. Even more unusual, there's a side story which includes a real live, or rather real dead and seriously extinct dodo bird. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Before teenagers were trying to hack computer networks and personal computers, they were trying to hack the telephone system. Phil Lapsley's 2013 book describes Exploding the Phone, the untold story of the teenagers and outlaws who hacked Ma Bell. His words to the wise, be confident and self-assured and act like you know what you're doing. Be confident and self-assured and act like you know what you're doing is so important because it's what allows you, first of all, to get ahead in life. But particularly if you're a phone freak, if you're a phone hacker who wants to explore the network, that's the magic thing that allows you to social engineer. It allows you to pretend that you're somebody other than you are and basically trick people, telephone company employees, into doing things that they really should not do for you. I hadn't heard the term Ma Bell in maybe decades. Tell everybody, who's Ma Bell? Back when the telephone company was really just the one telephone company, so this is back in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, Ma Bell was the phone company. It was AT&T, American Telephone Telegraph, also known as the Bell System. And for most of the country, it was your one and only telephone company. It was where you got your telephone service from, unlike today when you've got lots of competitors that provide phone service. And you've got landlines. You've got Internet lines. You've got cable lines that are Internet. We, got, we don't even know where anything's coming from. <laughs> That's right. And, and, but back then, you knew it was coming from the phone company. It was coming from Ma Bell. And basically, you had, you know, it was the old Henry Ford joke, you know, any color you like, so long as it's black. Right. You know, you have a rotary phone in the 1960s. You've got maybe one party service or maybe you've got a party line. So you can have multiple people, your neighbors on the same telephone line. But that's it as far as phone service comes. It's one thing and it's from the phone company. Now, when you open your book it, uh, on the inside front cover and the back, it's the same map. There's a map of the United States and it's not the interstate transport system here and interstate freeways or anything. What are we looking at with that map? The uh, long distance lines that were provided by uh, Ma Bell, by the phone company, um, and this was back in the 1950s and 60s. It's uh, a combination of coaxial cable, of microwave routes, of, uh, of long lines. It's just all the ways that the telephone company got your voice from hither to yon across the United States. Well, let's go back to the 60s and 70s. I mean, for crying out loud, people forgot how expensive it was to make a long-distance call. Yeah, that's right. I, one of the things I did when I was researching the book was I went and dug up all the data on how much it costs to make a five-minute phone call from San Francisco to New York, right? And remember, this is back in the day when you had daytime rates, uh, evening rates, and night rates, if you can remember back that far. 
And, you know, back in the 1950s, um, it would be $25 in dollars today, right? Not dollars then, but dollars today to make a five-minute call from San Francisco to New York. And today, I don't I – mean, most people, their long distance is either an all-you-can-eat plan or it's bundled in with their cell phone. So they don't even think about it. It's just long distance doesn't really exist anymore except maybe for international calls, and people use Skype for that. So it almost seems free. And given how expensive it was, a lot of people don't remember we had person-to-person, station-to-station, collect, you know, collect calls. Now, explain all those for people. I think that's important to remember. Yeah. So this was, again, back, if you think back to when phone calls were really expensive, you didn't want to take a chance on making a normal phone call, you know, to call your, you know, your friend or something. And it turns out he or she isn't home, but somebody from their family answers the call, and so now you have to pay for it. So a normal call was called a station-to-station call. But then they also had person-to-person, where what you would do is you would tell the operator, I want to talk to Moira. And so I'm going to call this number. And if she's not there, I don't pay anything. But if she is there, I pay an extra fee because the phone company did the service to me. So it's almost like it's almost like the phone company has become a casino, right? You're betting as to whether the person's there or not, and they're going to charge you a little bit of extra. And then, of course, you could also call collect, where I'm going to call my friend but have her pay for it as opposed to me pay for the phone call. Reverse the charges. Reverse the charges, exactly. The original 800 number. That's right. (laughs) Before 800 numbers came around. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features Phil Lapsley, the author of Exploding the Phone, the untold story of the teenagers and outlaws who hacked Ma Bell. Today, he's still in technology with the Edge AI and Vision Alliance. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, digital technology makes us all data citizens. Former New York Times data artist Jer Thorpe talks about living in data, a citizen's guide to a better information future. Then Joe Hernandez tells us about Blue Water Vaccine's journey in developing a universal flu vaccine. It wouldn't be complete without an actual and long extinct dodo bird. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Jer Thorpe. Well, Jer, welcome to Tech Nation. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, when it comes to data, I've often said to people, hey, it's a free country. You can record any kind of data you want. I mean, the light in your bedroom at 7 a.m. every morning every day for the rest of your life, where you can search other people's data looking for answers. I mean, that's no different than a journalist or a scientist or a detective. And that's very similar to me, to the story you start out with about the 1944 publication, Geological Investigation of the Alluvial Valley of the Lower Mississippi River. Not catchy, but a really fascinating publication. Yeah, it would make a hard tattoo, wouldn't it, that title? (laughs) Um, you you know, I first fell in love with those maps because they are just so visually gorgeous. I mean, they are so stunning. These, these meandering 
strings of color overlapping. And, and it wasn't until I started writing the book because I knew that I wanted to bring the maps into it that I started to understand the process behind them. And you know, this was the result of thousands and thousands of these deep borings into the, into the beds of the Mississippi River. And then actually quite a new technology at that point was aerial photographs. And so the combination of aerial photographs and these borings deep into the riverbed the lead scientist, whose name was Hal Fisk, uh, was able to come up with this incredible data set. And then it's still exact, kind of a little unclear as to who drew them, the, the, the maps. But I think it was this guy named R.H. Smith. And he made these, these just lo- lovely, lovely maps. And, um, you know, they became a kind of talisman for the book because they're so, uh, they're so fun to follow. And they also have such a deep data story behind them. So often we've heard about how the Mississippi River will suddenly change course or overflow its banks. And as you think about it, it's laying silt, it's laying all kinds of things uh, around so that if you drill down, you're actually going to find a history, sort of like tree rings, of what the river did, where it was, and where it wasn't once you put all that data together. In fact, some of the drills weren't really on the river itself. Yeah, they were miles and miles away because, you know, the way that these rivers work, as you say, is they lay down silt and then the the river can't flow anymore. So it kind of flows around them and it leaves these little U-shaped oxbow lakes that because they're stranded from the river, they, they eventually over decades and, you know, centuries get overgrown and they turn into land. But But you can see the pattern of them because of the trees that are left behind, which, oh, to me is just this, this delightful... Uh, a metaphor, right? That we can look at the landscape and, and see what was written before us in the trees. And if we think about a map, that's okay, that's 2D, but you could put layers and layers of maps over time, which show you what, what exactly happened. Well, I think that's what's unique about about those meander maps, um, which I call the Fisk-Smith maps. I, I think Hal would be a little upset that everyone was 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 so excited about the maps and not about the paper. <laughs> but but <laughs> tough um, luck. <laughs> yeah, that's what makes it so exciting, and and that's why I think one of the reasons it's always really st- stuck to me is that it, these are big static images, and they are super big. I mean, to view all of these plates of the map, you would need a hallway. I think 150 feet long. They're just these gorgeous large-scale things. And they do. They tell this story over time, which to me just really sat with me about the necessity when you're telling a story about a kind of modern relationship with something like data to also be looking backwards because there are lots of those meanderings. There's lots of those oxbow lakes. There's lots of little streams. And I wanted to try to follow them as many as I could. Well, I love the first uh, sentence of your chapter one, it's 11.01 a.m., and I'm about to be attacked by a hippopotamus. <laughs> Who could resist that sentence? Okay, what happened? <laughs> yeah, right. That's the, the opening sentence exactly that you expect from a data book, right? So I started doing, doing data visualization sort of straight up, like someone would deliver me a data set, and I would do a visualization of it. But what I, what I sort of started to, what I came to understand was that the story behind the data was really necessary to do a good job. And so I met this scientist named Steve Boys, and he was doing work um, about around biodiversity in a part of Africa called, called the Okavango Delta. 
And I decided that I would use him to, to swim upstream into this data current to get to that point where, where data was collected. And that in, in, in examining that kind of moment where data was collected, I would learn more about it. What I didn't know when I made that decision that it would involve this like three ton animal swimming through the water uh, with, with the desire to upturn our boat. And it was probably the scare. It was the second scariest thing that happened to me in my life. A couple of years later, on the same expedition, I had a pair of male um, lions um, hang out beside my tent for three and a half hours, and that was the scariest thing that's happened in my life. But the hippo was a close <laughs> second, and you know I was wearing a heart rate monitor, which you'll read about in the book. <laughs> you see this like completely ludicrous spike in my heart rate. Like I hope that any doctors who look at that visualization aren't going to be like themselves going through some type of cardiac arrest seeing, seeing my, my heart rate. Well, I found that the interesting part of this is when you came back and you had the heart rate, you were able to write a program to, to and put heart rate into it, the heart, sounds of heart rate into it, so that you could relive the experience. You could listen to the experience. Yeah, yeah. So there's always an instinct for me to to look at what the data is. So what is the real world thing that that data came from? And in this case, it's this weird multi-chambered organ <laughs> in my chest. And, and and you know, I think if we all close our eyes and sort of think about some things about our heart, the first one of the first things we do is we hear that heartbeat. You know, it's it's in our it's in our bodies. It's a cons- constant sound. And so um, I decided to turn it back into sound and it, it didn't turn it into a, into like the a kind of sound. It was like, it was like a boop, like a, some tones. Beep, 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 beep. And um, what was really ex- amazing about that is that, uh, you know, and maybe this is my own bias because I remember what it was like, but it really brought me back there. And like, we know that, for example, um, mothers and their babies, they have a sympathetic relationship with heartbeat, right? So if you, if you listen to somebody else's slower heartbeat, if you put your chest against them, we know that that'll slow your own heartbeat. So I, I think part of that was that. It was like me listening to this data, and it was like both based on my memories and also just based on this natural response was bringing me back there. And and there's this real power um, for data to do that. But I don't think many people get a chance to, to experience it because it's so hard for the average person to go out. You, you started by saying how easy it is. And it's true. It's easy to go out and collect data. But the narrative about data is not that it's easy or not that it's fun, right? right. Fun and data don't seem too, too close to each other. <laughs> Oh, that that's a good Venn diagram. Fun is one circle, data is the other. Like trying to push them together. Nah, not so much. But I think it was so interesting to me because there were so many layers in this is that, uh, I mean, it took 11 minutes for your heart rate to go back to normal, which I mean, <laughs> you were being attacked by a hippopotamus, your yeah. first hippopotamus attack. I mean, after all, you were no pro there. And I thought to myself, if you assign someone to make up the story or make up the heartbeat of what it would be like under such a circumstance versus what did happen. Um, The authenticity of the information that you have is undeniable. And I'm not talking about analytics, you know, like we're going to look at this and this is what happens to someone under these conditions, but rather the, the experience replayed. You know, I, I think that that's part of the discovery of life that, you know, bringing in human experience with data actually brings us. I, I really love that phrase you're using. The, the authenticity is undeniable. You know, with that particular data set, 
um, because there's such a dramatic attempt, a, a event tied to it. I think we feel that, but that's the case with every piece of data, right? So, you know, it's amazing to me to think that all of us are being so closely monitored that actually there are data points in a data a database that maybe is Facebook's or Google's or Apple's that contain so many of those events, births and deaths and and first loves and and violent car accidents and and you know kids listening to ghost stories like those those things are all in the data that is in Facebook's database like all of those tiny beautiful parts of our lives are there and um i think it can be easy for a data person to forget that because when we look at a database we see uh, rows and columns of numbers and those numbers well they don't feel human do they but I think if we if we roll back to the actual people, then we find this deep human experience that's entrenched in all of those, in all of those big data sets. And whether it's big data sets or trying to reduce it to some simple numbers, as we're seeing today in COVID, every day we get deaths, we get cases, we get hospitalizations, and these are numbers. Every one of those numbers track back individually to a human and a different human experience. Yeah. You know, I, I, I had the, um, the chance to work on a project that really changed my life, which was, which was the algorithm to place the names on the 9-11 memorial. And I think that was the point in which I really realized as a data practitioner that it was, that it was so important to respect the data. You know, I would spend kind of day in and day out um, working to try to solve this particular problem. And what I found myself getting in the habit of doing was to look up the people's names and Googling them. And I would learn about their lives and I would learn these small things about them that, that were just so touching, um, you know, about how they coached a softball practice or how they, you know, had rescued two dogs or whatever it is. So, so, um, after that project, there was this built-in instinct for me to, to, to try to find, follow the thread from the number to the real thing. And, you know, with COVID, and I've written a little bit about this um, lately, is that we have this tremendous task in front of us because you're right that we have a number. We have this number, and I would argue that this number will follow us for the rest of our lives because it will not stop growing, and and it will be this this tremendous marker of an experience that all of us went through that no number can can be sufficient for and and now and now we're we we as a as a society are going to have this really hard um challenge of how do we remember and how do we memorialize and i think in doing that we we probably do need to examine what are some more human ways that we can we can talk about and show data i think that's part of why I was so touched by your uh, you know, challenge, meeting the challenge of how do we place the names on the 9-11 memorial, trying to find relationship and association. Uh, I'm, I'm, I know myself that uh, while we say a half a million deaths or almost 600,000 deaths now from COVID in the United States, you know, 80% of them are over 65. Yeah. 
And these are most often the people who were still active, getting around and exposed to the virus. In fact, it's decimated the front end of the baby boomers. We don't really talk about that. Yeah. We don't talk about it's actually concentrated in a particular part of our population and our experience as as friends, as uncles, as parents, as whoever we are. It's actually a specific portion of the populace that, you know, was fierce a year ago. Yeah. And did not expect to go. That, you know, what you're saying really resonates with me, I, I think. You know that's also a part of population, a part of the population where wisdom lives, and and I think sometimes as a Western culture we we're not as good as acknowledging that. But um, like if you if you add up the the years of wisdom, we've lost. We have had a trem- uh, this tremendous loss, and uh, y- you know one of the things that I think COVID has taught me, which I already knew but has really drilled home, is that. Anyone will find an argument in the numbers, right? And and I heard that argument over and over again. Oh, this is not a big deal because the only people that are dying are, you know, the immunocompromised and the elderly. Which I I, I just can't. I, it's hard to think of a more morally bankrupt argument than that. <laughs> that that it's somehow okay. <laughs> Let's not try. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 I think. Um. You know, I have a I have a a very good friend who will turn ninety four in July who who just got her vaccination a, a month ago, and I spent the entire part of this of this pandemic worried every day about her. Um, and speaking of wisdom, I mean, she she has lived this astounding career. She was one of the first computer artists, and 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 to to she has a lot left to give. And and I don't say that dismissively and kind of in a cliched way, but. Um, that that comes back to the ways that that data is attached to us in 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 order to describe us. You know, we we know that um, Facebook basically takes your data and tries to construct a persona out of you, so that they can slice and dice you into advertising, um, into advertising categories. And what they're doing is is a kind of maybe maybe slightly less morally bankrupt part thing of what we were saying there. They're saying that some people are more valuable than others because of their demographics, and and we know, for example, that that you know advertisers can can still say that they do or do not want to direct their advertisements to a certain racial demographic because they don't want to consider that that group. And I think, I, anyways, I think what you're saying really it, it it seems far apart from you know COVID and the elderly seems far apart from Facebook and ad targeting, but it isn't. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is data scientist and data artist Jer Thorpe. He's been the data artist in residence at the New York Times, a National Geographic Explorer, and the innovator in residence at the Library of Congress. He's here today with Living in Data, a citizen's guide to a better information future. Well, I have to ask you about the New York Times. I think a lot of people wouldn't understand about well, what what is that a data artist you know it's like well if you haven't looked at the new york times lately you don't realize that there's a whole lot of different ways of showing things when you have all the words of the new york times since ever they were printed in access what do you do with data like that tell people 
Well, so so I worked in the New York Times um, at their in their R and D group, which which maybe is even a little more confusing. Like, why does the newspaper need they have an R and D need an R and D group? <laughs> That's news. Print it. <laughs> and and so it was started by this um, really brilliant man named Michael Zimbalist. And he had this this nice uh, phrase where he would say the job of the R and D group was to look around the corner, <laughs> so so to look into the near future and see how people might be consuming media. And I so I moved to New York, New York from Vancouver um, in 2010, and I don't really remember exactly how it happened, but I ended up in a meeting there about a new project they were working on, and and the next day they offered me a job and. Um, they wanted a title and they had this idea that I could be the futurist in residence. And that word just makes me itchy. Like I, I <laughs> They'll fire me for sure. <laughs> yeah. I said, I said, how about data artist in residence? And they said, sure. And so that's how I ended up with that title. So I made it up. I think many of the best titles in the world um, get made up, but it was an amazing place to work. And, and we worked largely um, there with projects that, kind of looked at the data that the Times was producing. So that included all the stories, all the blogs, all of their historical archive, and then like the ways that people were engaging with their content. And um, it was it was, uh, it was was really just an astounding experience. Myself and Mark Hansen, um, who's a statistician and artist, we were, we were kind of the skunk works inside the R&D group. So we got to do the really weirdest stuff and, and nobody told us like what we should be doing or not. And it was just wonderful, and I met so many great people out of that, um, and and it really it really set me going on on the on my career, and 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 the, a lot of that is in the book, like a lot of the New York Times R and D lab is in the book. And so, what do you do? You sit there and you go, well, I guess it's the morning, you know. Let's see how many times people wonder about the weather, or I mean, what do you do? How do you think you got all this data? What questions do you think to ask, and what and what kind of, you know, what kind of question can you ask? That that's so that is so interesting because what I learned from the New York Times maybe more than I learned anywhere else was the value of exploring data, and it's a process that I've come to call question farming. So it's not looking at the data with a with a interest in in finding something particular or answering a question you have in your head, but instead um, going exploring. And, and, uh, and that's, that's a lot of what we did there. But um, when, I, when I came there, Mark had this question that he was really interested in answering, which was pretty, pretty direct. It was like, how does the New York Times content get shared on social media? And I don't know if... You, if you remember what was happening in 2010, but one of the things that was new in 2010 was the URL shortener. It was like this, you know, a service that would shorten your URL. A tiny URLs, yeah. Right, yeah. And and uh, what Mark realized, which I think was just an amazing insight, was that that URL shortening process gave us a bridge between the content and the person looking at it. Uh, and, and so what we built is we built this visualization system um, to show how every single piece at the time they were producing 6,000 um, pieces of content every month, how each one of those pieces was talked about. So hundreds of conversations, sometimes thousands about each individual piece in real time. So you could you could um, look at a story and kind of see that information. The structures really, we called them trees. They're like conversation trees. And it was, it was um, an amazing thing, although it did start to get me a little itchy 
about the <laughs> the role of being this kind of surveiller, you know, being watching people from the distance as they go about their online lives. You're listening to Jer Thorpe. His book is Living in Data, a Citizen's Guide to a Better Information Future. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Blue Water Vaccine's approach to developing a universal flu vaccine. Yes, I've already mentioned the dodo bird. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with data scientist and data artist Jer Thorpe. His book is Living in Data, a Citizen's Guide to a Better Information Future. So you left the New York Times in about 2012, and, and you write that in your next venture, and for much of the time since, we tried to break as many of data's rules as we could. First of all, who's we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I didn't know data had rules. Oh, does it ever have rules? Oh, okay. Oh, tell us, tell us, ever. tell us. Um, Mr. Tufty. Oh, Edward Tufty is who he's referring to. He's been on the show. Yes, <laughs> yes. So we, um, I, we started a studio. Actually, Mark was part of it in the very beginning. Um, and then he went off to, to start uh, um, an institute at Columbia called the Brown Institute. Uh, but I, I, I assembled this kind of amazing team uh, of of people at a, a studio called the Office for Creative Research, which was a kind of hybrid hybrid R and D group slash design studio slash artist collective, and and we did I think some what what you most people would agree are some pretty weird things with data. We um, we did a set of forty minute performances at the Museum of Modern Art in which. Um, nothing came out of the performers' mouths that wasn't verbatim from the database. Uh, we put a uh, a giant data sculpture in the middle of Times Square 
we converted an abandoned gymnasium in in uh, in St. Louis, this North City, into a space for people from the neighborhood and the city to come in and make these gigantic maps that they would then pro- project data on. So we were we were, as you say, trying to break rules rules about um, what data should look like, about what stories it should tell, and about who gets to tell those stories. One example you mention in, in, a, in a chapter is the spatial data management system at N- MIT. It's called Dataland, and it was led by the famous uh, computer scientist Nicholas Necroponte. There has also been a parallel line about warning us that you know the loss of privacy and the intrusion in our lives and, and what it meant. Now, our tools have become more sophisticated, and our data is getting more expansive, what about those early prognostications? Were they right? Have they changed? Yeah. I mean, this is are the warnings still the warnings, or did they come true? So, so if people don't, if you can't picture in your head data language, you probably can't. It it, it was uh, this data um, exploration interface. It was a, literally an Eames chair. It had two joysticks, one on either arm, and um, and it had surround sound in this room, and there were giant projection screens, and the person would sit in this kind of captain's chair, very um, Jean-Luc Picard-esque, and they would uh, like fly through data space and, and, and look at, you know, there were, there were examples where they would fly into Landsat satellite imagery or they would, they would go through these huge data sets of numbers. Um, and and you know, that project really stuck with me because of the metaphors that are kind of anchored within it. So it was actually funded by the Navy, which maybe explains some of that kind of battleship, uh, like kind of thing. But I, but I also could, I could. Oh, I was just thinking it was testosterone. I don't know why. Well, it's definitely that too, right? Because these men, they were all men. Uh, there was such a Star Trekness to it, you know. And I, I think probably these guys were watching Star Trek <laughs> going in to try to build our data future. And a lot of our data future was built on on the way that those particular men saw their lives. Um, but we can, in, in fact, kind of reverse back from that. So when computers started to become a really important mechanism to store and analyze and share, particularly government data, there were lots of very interesting discussions. So in the late 1960s, um, the, the, there were congressional hearings about how the government, now that it is storing our data, data about us and databases, what kind of considerations should they have around privacy? What kind of considerations should they have around um, security? You know, there were even discussions about how do we treat the data of migrants who were entering the United States that were not United States citizens? Should we treat that, that data differently? Are there implications to those people's lives to have their records on file? And so so these were sophisticated discussions. And, and in fact, I think you could take large parts of those congressional hearings and recite them today. And people would believe that we were talking about um, the the things we're talking about today. And what, you know, one thing I talk about in the book is that kind of as a result of the same things on the other side of the Atlantic, um, West Germany at the time um, installed a data ombudsperson who still exists in Germany. It was a kind of a high-ranking government role who, um, who, whose job is to keep an eye on the companies that are using people's data in Germany and to be an advocate for, for those people. It, it, I, you know, now here we are in 2021, so we're 41 years um, past that and uh, 51 years past that. And 
Um, and we don't have that kind of thing in the United States. No. <laughs> which, which is amazing to me. Yeah, but we talked about it. We talked it to death, but we didn't do anything about it. Okay, I'm with you. We often think that all the data is going to be coming from the government, big data. But people collectively can create a lot of data. In fact, uh, we often think, for instance, the airspace is, you know, for communication is owned by the government. You talk about in the book about uh, these beacons and how people are are actually communicating over and collecting data over airspace, which actually have not been permitted by the government. Well, so that's that's an interesting question. So um, there, there's a few things to talk about there. So, so the example that I think you're talking about is this work that we have been doing in Cameroon with these radio stations in that are up in these trees. And and the reason why this is that is kind of a little bit extra governmental is that actually in Cameroon there aren't um, there aren't guidelines around that particular kind of band of 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 infrared. Sp- of, of frequency space. Um, in the U.S., it, those, things, those things are controlled. So if I want to do what's called low-range um, radio LoRa um, trans, tra, uh, transmissions, I do have to, if I'm building those devices, I have to adhere to a kind of frequency range. But here's an interesting point, and I talk about it in the chapter um, before, which is all about a visit that I, I did to St. To Louis, to, to New Zealand, to speak to um, a couple of people, uh, Maui Hudson and, and Tahu Kukatai, who run the Maori indigenous, or part, partly run the Maui, Maori indigenous sovereignty movement. And one very interesting thing that I learned is that the Maori people um, in, I think, I believe it was in the late 1980s, successfully made a claim that, that, that frequency bands, just like the land itself, were, were something that they had rights to. And uh, I think that is kind of amazing. <laughs> and um, actually the whole, that, that's my favorite chapter because I was just so inspired by the work that, um, that that group is doing in New Zealand and so inspired by the Maori, nation, the Maori people in general uh, um, really working hard to, to, to own the data about them, own the data that they own, collect in, in a really meaningful way and one that's legally binding, which, which I think doesn't have a lot of precedent. Uh, elsewhere. All the airspace around us, all the frequencies around us, um, they exist today. I just think about where I'm sitting, how many different wireless networks, if I had the password, I could get into. Yeah. And it's just like, how could that be? Things have changed, but they haven't changed. It's still the same physical space. Well, you know, when I... um when I was writing this book, I think I mentioned this in the beginning, but I but I was really conscious of trying to look back at at times in history when 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 things were different, and it's interesting that I think you bring up um, airspace and and broadcasters because around the same time that that the internet became kind of radically privatized, the airwaves also became radically privatized. And, um, you know, there are laws in place in many states that prevent community radio stations from having a broadcast signal above a certain strength. And there's no reason for that other than the kind of big players in, in, in broadcast want, want to prevent them from doing so. 
and you know, one of the stories that I talk about um, in the book is is about the Freenet movement in the early 1990s, which was this movement right at the beginnings of what we would call the internet, like the public internet. Of course, the internet existed before, but like an internet that the, the people generally used. There was a very active movement across North America and elsewhere to make the internet a public utility. So to to make the internet something that everybody got for free. And I look back at the Freenet movement as something not as a failed experiment, but something that's deeply inspiring. I, I actually volunteered with the Victoria Freenet, which was started by these um, people, um, May and Gareth Shearman. And in their original goals with the with the Freenet, they talked about it serving people in poverty. They talked about it serving the elderly. They talked about it serving indigenous groups. Like what a better start we would have had for the internet if that would have been in our mind when we began. Uh, I do believe we're circling back to those values, but um, it's kind of an amazing alternate history for me to think about. Like, what what if that had been the way that the internet worked? And, you know, coming back to our discussion about Star Trek, it's like, what if the internet was a little more like Sesame Street, like nest, nest based in the community, kind of about about kindness and care. And, and I'm Canadian, so I can be utopian and say these things. Um, and I, and I think it's ra- it's sort of radical to think about them that way, but it also is it's necessary to push against the narrative that's set out by Silicon Valley that the way that we that we have gone is the necessary way because the way that we have gone is not the necessary way, <laughs> and we can still go a different way. You know, there are still other meanders, there are other places for data to take us. If we had thought about this from the beginning, and uh, and this ties in, you know, throughout the book, you are. Uh, you have a message that is there saying, whatever we're doing here, let's think about the ethics. Let's think about the ethics as we're building it, as we're using it. And um, uh, that is such a challenge. Uh, We always think, well, if we had just thought, but I always say, you know, the creators of a technology can't predict how it's going to be used. And, And any technology, when you place it in the hands of a new person, can create a whole new application that you didn't see. And so we have this cascade of ethical uh, challenges and social implications. Um, and it's like everyone has to, at every turn, think about these ethical implications. How, because some of it is beyond your control, even if you think of the ethics yourself. I, I agree with you to some extent. I think that that there are things that you will not know when you build when you're building technology and releasing into the world. But I also believe that we, and I include myself in this, have done an extremely poor job at listening to people who have spent their entire careers studying possible impacts of technology. You know, and 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 I, I open the the book with a with a quote by. Um, uh, Ursula Franklin, who who was a Canadian uh, metallurgist and and amongst many many other things, but she gave a set of lectures in 1993 called "The Real World of Technology." Um, it was I think it was 93. It could have been earlier than that. Anyways, don't 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 pin me down on that. But it was a long time ago, and and you know in internet in internet time, and she was paving an exact roadmap to the things that we need to consider as we're building. Con- technologies like Facebook, like Google, like all these these things. And and so I think it's a little bit 
um, convenient to say that we couldn't know because I think we could have known <laughs> and 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 there was a blind ear or a... some of the things you can know that's true yeah what yeah. you do what you could know you're responsible for what you couldn't know well okay I'll give you a pass on that one but if you could have known it and you just said well I'm not gonna sure. bother and, you know? and we said this before about about testosterone you know these were a bunch of men and a yeah. bunch of white men in a room making decisions about our technology future. And that in itself is something that doesn't fit in a, oh, well, <laughs> we didn't know better kind of thing. You know, I think, um, <laughs> but but I want to get away from ethics for a second because I think ethics is sort of somewhat well well covered territory where, de- where data is concerned. And, and I, I want to sort of introduce a word that I don't think is well covered territory, which is citizenship. So, you know, the the title of the book is Living in Data, because I do believe that you and I and our parents and grandparents and children and everybody else is living in data right now. Um, but what we have not come to reckon with is how do we become citizens of data? And that that may be more than anything is is the the point of the book. Well, I got to say, Jer, you've just really... You've inspired me and egged me on. It's like, oh, my goodness, I have a guest that actually will answer questions I ask him. It's incredible. <laughs> I could just keep on talking. Wow. I could keep on talking. <laughs> oh, no, you did. You were, you're great. So uh, uh, you've been a real good sport about this, and it's, a, it's just a terrific book. And uh, uh, I really want to thank you for coming on, and I hope you'll come on again. Hey, thank you. This is a really fun conversation. And, you know, you used the word fun in the beginning, and I had a little Post-it note when I was writing this book that said, uh, if it's not fun, they won't read it. And so, so I hope go. I did a good job of writing a fun <laughs> data book. And this was, yeah, it was really great. And I hope we get the chance to talk again. My guest today is Jer Thorpe. The book is Living in Data. It's published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. The search for a universal flu vaccine to protect against all viruses is on. And that's the mission of Blue Water Vaccines. We'll hear about their approach, as well as how the opportunity to decode the DNA of the long-extinct dodo bird plays into the story. And now, Blue Vaccines founder and CEO, Joe Hernandez. Well, Joe, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for the invitation. Delighted to be here. We've been so focused on COVID. Once we're all vaccinated against COVID and back mixing and mingling in some semblance of our former lives, uh, the flu is going to come back. And the flu is really very dangerous and impactful in itself. That's absolutely correct. Uh, as a matter of fact, the flu really hasn't gone away. It's just been overshadowed by our current dilemma with COVID-19. And of course, you know, on a typical season, the the flu kills about 250,000 to 500,000 people worldwide. So it continues to be a significant issue and will be for the foreseeable future. Now, Blue Water is working uh, to develop a universal flu vaccine. What is a universal flu vaccine and how is that different from today's annual flu shot? Well, today's annual flu shot involves uh, basically predicting what virus is going to be the predominant virus for that season, bringing that virus back from Asia 
propagating that virus in pro- predominantly eggs. We actually manufacture the the uh, the vaccine, the antigens in eggs, and then we kill that um, the isolated um, uh, purified virus, and that becomes the annual vaccine. So that we do that every year. It's a process quite labor-intensive, and we have to do it every year. A universal influenza allows you to circumvent that and effectively do uh, one vaccination for a lifetime. So you would have coverage for all variants of the influenza virus moving forward. It's a real holy grail. Everybody's looking for it. We think so. Yeah, we think so. We think it's going to change the way we look at influenza and it's going to change humanity. And I think we will save lots of lives around the world, and we're excited about the project. So one day you were reading a paper in the prestigious scientific journal Nature by a mathematician at Oxford, Dr. Gupta, and you got very excited. What did you read? What did you do? Well, this paper was really fascinating, and I'm I'm kind of a a, a follower of um, viruses and infectivity um, theses and theories around viruses. And well, the paper by Dr. Gupta was really controversial. It was really a mathematical model. Um, analyzing the diversity or the perceived diversity of influenza. And it was a, it was a mathematical analysis. Dr. Gupta is actually a mathematician. And she looked at the, the issue of uh, influenza diversity uh, as a mathematical question. So what the paper really concluded was that if, in fact, influenza was so diverse, why didn't we have 1,000 copies or 10,000 or 100,000 different variants every year? In fact, we had one prominent virus um, as long as we had recorded the infections of influenza. And that was quite controversial. And uh, what was basically deduced from that paper was that, in fact, influenza was more conserved than we had originally uh, theorized. You use the word conserved, which is actually, it sounds English, but it's a scientific term. What do you mean that the viruses were conserved? Conserved is an evolutionary and genetic term that really defines uh, lack of variation throughout different generations. So as as years uh, and generations progress, there are certain elements in genes in humans and in plants and in viruses and in bacteria that don't change over time. And that is the definition of conserved from a from an evolutionary perspective. We believe that because of that conserved element that the influenza has, we can in fact develop a universal influenza that will, uh, excuse me, universal influenza vaccine that will address the viruses as, as it changes throughout the different cycles every year. I know you're working on the H1 virus, the H3 virus, and flu B. How are they different from each other? Well, they're, they're, um, they're close uh, relatives. I would, I would call them as siblings. Uh, they're variations of the same influenza. They, they pop up every so often in, in very random fashion. Uh, but they are the same family of viruses, uh, so we, we, we just termed them differently. But they're, in fact, all influenzas. Do they share the same conserved regions? They share very similar regions. In, in our uh, approach, what we do is we look at conserved regions across these different variants, and we make a vaccine against all of them. But in reality, um, these viruses um, are genetically um, different. They're they're siblings, but different. So you went to Oxford, knocking on doors saying, I really like this. <laughs> Blue Water really likes this. <laughs> what happened? Well, well, the story goes, I actually called the university and, and I said, listen, I read this paper. I'm intrigued by the science. I think there is some merit here. We, I, 
uh, myself would like to take this forward and form a company, and I think we can build a universal flu that will transform the world. And of course, the Oxford folks were, well, that's wonderful. Who are you? We'll call you later. Um, thank you for calling us. And I didn't hear back from them. And it wasn't until I called the scientists and said, by the way, I love your paper. I get it. Here's what it says. Uh, I really believe in the theory. Can you help? And that's really when we got motion on the on the licensing front. Now, I understand that Oxford just didn't license this to you for uh, uh, as a, a standard entrepreneurial proposition. Well, w- one of the interesting parts of this deal was that the inventor and, and the folks at Oxford were really concerned and they wanted to make sure that once this technology became available, that it was available to everybody in the world. And part of our agreement was that we would make this technology available to developing countries at uh, cost plus 10%, and, and we committed to that. So we're really committed to getting this thing, this vaccine, when it's ultimately developed to everybody in the world. Where are you now? What is Blue Water doing? So right now we're, we, we have um, validated um, what we call basically one part of the, the, the universal flu uh, portion. We're working on the other two elements. We're validating it in animals, and then we'll move that into humans for for effectively proof of concept in humans. There's a wonderful part to this story, a side story that we have to talk about, and it has to do with the dodo bird. Now tell us, Joe, how you got seriously involved with the dodo bird, which, by the way, everyone, has been extinct for several centuries. Well, what, one of the, the amazing um, opportunities and honors I have is to work with the scientists at Oxford who are really amazing people individually and scientifically. And it was during one of our dinners with a, a number of the faculty at Oxford that uh, one of the scientists walked in with a tie of a dodo bird. And of course, we uh, transcended into a conversation about the dodo bird. He was impressed with my knowledge of the dodo bird, which was really limited. But nonetheless, we uh, we both realized that we had a love for this uh, extinct animal. And uh, we um, figured out that there was um, a way for us to collaborate in sequencing the genome of the dodo. Uh, it turns out that Oxford actually has one of the the few remaining actual fossils of the dodo bird, and uh, so we we decided to visit the bird in the morning, and uh, and there we both agreed that we should do something to to benefit the um, the value of that um, species that is no longer with us, and so we decided to sequence the the the, the, the genome of the dodo. What does the dodo bird look like? The dodo bird is a very um, uh, unattractive bird. Unfortunately, it's not a very beautiful bird, but it so it looks a little like a duck between a duck, a cross of a duck and a uh, and a big beal um, heron, if you would. And uh, so he's you know short to the ground and a little chubby, not utterly attractive, as I said, but really important from an evolutionary perspective. And how is that? Well, it, it's it, it really is a lesson in why animals become extinct and why nature forces certain species to no longer be. And the dodo is a clear example of that. The dodo uh, at one point in its life was able to fly and then it lost its ability to fly, became a bigger animal and uh, was predating on um, an island, Mauritius. And then uh, for whatever reason, nature turned its uh, rules on the dodo bird and the dodo became the the uh, from predator to be in the 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 uh, the animal being predated upon and became extinct. It became the prey. Correct. Yes. It became the prey. But you've been interested in the dodo bird for a long time. 
Absolutely. I've, I, I found a dodo bird um, really uh, fascinating. And I, and I have to say my fascination with the dodo bird really originated from a movie called Ice Age, which is really a kid's movie. Uh, and I watched that movie with my child and I uh, had to explain to him why the animal became extinct. Of course, I didn't, I had limited knowledge at that point. And that was really how I became utterly fascinated with this animal. And uh, here we are trying to figure out why genetically it it it, uh, it did what it did. So you're at Oxford, you're having dinner with scientists, you're trying to convince Oxford to license the technology so you can try to make this universal flu vaccine. And somehow the dodo bird comes up and he has one. <laughs> and it was like the next day, you're probably going to fly out and say, no, I'm not flying out. I'm going to go see the dodo bird. Tell us about that experience. Yes. Of actually being able to see a dodo bird. That was, it was a fascinating, uh, we were having dinner and, and uh, over a glass of wine, he proposed that I should visit the dodo early in the morning. And unfortunately we had a very tight window at seven o'clock before the actual museum opened. And I, I promised I'd be there. And sure enough, he shows up, he bikes his way to a, uh, the front door of the amazing uh, natural natural museum of of uh, at Oxford University, and and we walked in and and uh, I got to meet the the, the actual um, dodo, not in not in living form, of course, but the actual fossil of the dodo, which was a very humbling experience for me because this animal had been last alive in the 1600s. Now, was it in a drawer? Was it in a cage? It was in a specialized. Uh, location within the museum in a very, very well-protected case, uh, cared for by a very, very um, important person who's one of the primary roles is to watch over the dodo. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could volunteer to be the next guy if he wants to go on vacation or something. I, I've offered, I've offered. They, they have not taken me up on that offer yet. <laughs> That's right, but they know you're serious. Whenever you make an offer, I, it's a serious yes, offer. Yes. Well, uh, Joe, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you'll come back, keep us updated. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Delighted to be with you and uh, look forward to uh, this exciting project. Joe Hernandez is the founder and CEO of Blue Water Vaccines. For more information about the Oxford Dodo, just Google Oxford Dodo. And for more information about Blue Water Vaccines, it's on the web at bluewatervaccines.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.